until election day or depending upon who you're talking to 16 days until the end of the world as we know it it just kind of depends on what your perspective is and and I think where your hope actually lies I mean has this been one for the ages we have been absolutely obsessed with this campaign even even the National Football League, which previously seemed absolutely bulletproof in its popularity, the NFL ratings are down this year. For the first time in 12 years, the NFL ratings are down primarily because of the election and the campaign. Now, this past week, the presidential debates came to a merciful conclusion and we're, we're kind of spurring the horse to the barn in the final days of this campaign and this election cycle. And we are obsessed, but the reality is not only are we obsessed, we're also equally distressed. Because there are some startling numbers out there about our attitude, about our perspective on this election. Fewer than half of registered voters are satisfied with the choices we have for president. Fewer than half. More than half, over 50% of voters view their vote more as a vote against either candidate than one for the person they will actually vote for. Less than 40% say that the phrase honest and truthful better describes either candidate. Among voters younger than 30, only 23% are satisfied with their choices for president. Wouldn't you love to talk to that 23%? But anyway, that's, that's a different sermon. But there, there, are, there is a bright spot. Currently, 77% of us say that the campaign has been interesting. So we've got that going for us. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? what's going on around us, and it's for those very reasons and so many more. The last weekend, we as a church began this series of messages called, We the People, because we've discovered as a church that we have a really, really huge task in front of us, specifically that, that we're called to something much, much greater than an apathetic appalledness, that, that we're called to actually engage in this world in which we live. But if you'll remember from last week, we, we found out that we have this divinely appointed dual citizenship. This divinely appointed dual citizenship. Philippians chapter 3 tells us, but we, the tribe of faith, are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and 
we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. So our, the reality is our primary citizenship, though our address may be the U.S. of A., our primary citizenship is in heaven, in the, in the kingdom of God. And as such, as a follower of Christ, we're, we're called to live in this kind of betwixt and between space where we're, we're eyeing heaven, but we're living on earth. And it's that reality that Jesus spoke to when, when he taught us to pray. And he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then later on, he commissioned those of us who are the tribe of faith to actually be his hands and feet in this world and to engage and to actively participate in the redeeming of the culture within which we live, that you and I are that, that redeeming agent in this world by virtue of the fact that we've been commissioned by Christ. And we, we discovered last week also that our primary role as Christians, as followers of Christ, particularly and specifically here in the United States where most of us live on a regular basis, is to be a people of, of hope and help and honor. And that that's, that's to be our calling card wherever we go and whatever we do and whatever the conversation looks like. And so today I want us to really and truly look at the fact of our hope. Because our hope is not just some kind of pie-in-the-sky, feel-good panacea. Our hope is rooted in fact. The hope that, that we're called to embody and to live out of is rooted in the rugged reality of the resurrection. The fact that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of the living God and he died on a cross and he rose again from the grave. The grave is empty and that is the basis of our hope. This is, this is what it's rooted in. And so it's imperative that you and I who go by the name Christian know what we're hoping in, that we understand why this hope is so real and so reliable. So I want you to look at your neighbor with passion and election year conviction and enthusiasm and tell him, get you some hope. Now, as I said, this isn't just pie in the sky panacea. This is reality. And it's important that we understand the source of our hope. It's not just a feeling that we have or as some people will say, well, that's just a crutch that people rely on. No, it ain't. Say, no, it ain't. It ain't. And I can do that this weekend because my mom is not in town. She was an English teacher. But she right now in Houston just had a little cold chill and a rigor and doesn't know why. But the source of our hope is the gospel. The source of our hope is the gospel. Now, gospel is an important word, but it's often very, very misunderstood. We, we use it kind of sometimes lightly, like we'll say, well, that's the gospel truth. Or, or maybe you're kind of old school like me, and you like gospel music, that old-time gospel music. But in this context, the gospel is a very, very specific thing. The word gospel means the good news, the good news specifically of Jesus Christ. And whenever you think the word gospel, I want you to automatically equate it with John chapter 3, verse 16. 
John chapter 3, verse 16 captures the essence of the gospel, the gospel which is the essence of the Christian faith. This is the bottom line. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. So, so the gospel begins, it is sustained, and it concludes with the love of God. This is how God loved the world. He loved you by name. For this is how God so loved, insert your name there, by name. He loves you. Yes, he loves the world and the cosmos and creation. But more specifically, he loves you by name. And this is how much he loves you, that he gave his only son, Jesus. Jesus, who was dwelling in heaven with God at the right hand of the Father, abandoned his rightful place in heaven and became one of us. He walked on the earth for 33 years. That is beyond intelligent dispute. That is just a cold, hard fact of life that Jesus of Nazareth lived for about 33 years. And, by the way, it's also a commonly accepted historical fact that he died on a Roman cross. He was executed like a common criminal. But we know that the Bible tells us he died a common criminal's death having never sinned, much less never committed a crime. He never sinned. He never did anything to contradict the moral, spiritual law of God because he is God. He is, during his time on earth, totally man and totally God, and yet, he went to the cross taking on my sin and your sin. And when he took that sin on himself, he paid the consequence of that sin. He paid the penalty of that sin, and he died. Not only did he die physically, but the Bible tells us that he was spiritually alienated from God the Father because he became our sin. Your sin, my sin, the stuff that we don't want anybody else to know about but we know about, Jesus took that on himself. And then he did what you and I couldn't have done for ourselves. He defeated death and he subdued sin. And on the third day, he rose again from the grave. This is the root of our hope. The fact that Jesus' tomb is empty is the cornerstone. It is the linchpin of the gospel, of our Christian faith. And it is the root of the hope that we have. But, but this hope is so profound, it cuts so deeply and penetrates to the very core of who we are that today we're going to spend the rest of our time drilling down into this hope thing. Because it's not just a, a pie-in-the-sky thing. It, it's, a, it's a real thing. A few weeks ago, my lovely bride Julie was out of town. She was speaking at a church in another state, and, and I was on my own back here at home, and I was in the midst of this kind of ridiculous eating plan. You might have heard, you know, I've talked about it a little bit before, this whole 30 thing where you just eliminate all fun from your diet whatsoever. And, and it really is, it's a, it's a pretty amazing thing. But when Julie was out of town, I, I was kind of early in the process. And, and one afternoon, I just kind of, I just kind of had a, a me metabolic crash. You know what I'm talking about? And, and you just kind of used to, I didn't feel good. I, and I wanted like a big old mound of peanut butter. That's what I really wanted, but that's not on the plan, so I didn't do it. And I, I, I pushed through the afternoon, and 
kind of shut down work for the day, and I made a beeline for the grocery store meat counter. Because I, I just, I, I attributed this crash to too many vegetables and not enough protein. And so I went to the meat counter, and, and there, late in the afternoon, there was like just this little, little bit of beef tenderloin left. And I looked at the butcher, and I said, I want that one right there. And he said, sir, are you okay? I said, I will be. Just if you'll cut that into two-inch steaks, please, I would really appreciate it. And while he was cutting that tenderloin into two-inch steaks, I was just kind of perusing the meat counter, and I saw pork belly. I've, I've never had pork belly, but on the Whole30 eating plan, you can eat pork belly. I said, give me a pound and a half of pork belly, big boy. And I got that meat home. I sliced that pork belly in big old slabs, put it in a skillet, fired up the charcoal grill the way God wanted meat to be cooked when he created humanity. And I fired up, and, and when I sat down to eat, even though Julie wasn't there, all of a sudden when, when the, the protein hit, kind of just touched my tongue, it was like the heavens parted and the angels sang, ah, and all of a sudden I felt better. I felt so much better. It, it, was just, it was time for some meat. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Sometimes you just need some meat. Am I the only one? Surely not. And, and if you're vegan, that's cool. That's awesome, I, I guess. But I, I tease. I tease. Don't send me an email. Have you ever seen the Venn diagram of the, the vegan and the CrossFitter? And where those two things overlap, it says, I never quit talking. But anyway, that's, that's a true story, by the way. <clears throat> Sometimes you just need some meat. Today, as a church, we're, we're going to dive into a huge meat sandwich in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, the Bible explains this hope that we are to live out of, that we are to vote with, that we are to love with, that we are to talk about, that we are to share, that we are to literally embody everywhere that we go. And here's the beautiful thing is you're looking at Romans chapter 5. This is a reality no matter what happens on election day. Now, Election Day matters. Do not misunderstand me. But no matter who wins the election, God is still God. God will still be on his throne regardless of who occupies the Oval Office. Appreciate that smattering of applause because <laughs> I know it's not for me it's for the reality so again you know all of this hand wringing or fist clenching about the election everybody just just cool out just chill out it, it matters we have to vote but I mean we got bigger fish to fry as well Look at what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So, as a Christ follower, anybody who goes by the name of Christian, however you want to vote, knock yourself out. But ultimately, as a follower of Christ, we are called to be a dealer of hope. We're not dealing dope, we're dealing hope. We're to to spread it everywhere we go because we have this hope within us. Now, this is a really, really important point of fact. You you could call it doctrine. You could call it theology. I just call it truth. This is a reality. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Remember, it says, we have been justified through faith. Justified through faith faith. Now that word justified is really, really important. And and if you're here today and you're not yet a Christ follower, if you're kicking the tires, it's important, I think, for you to understand this as much as it is those of us who maybe have been around a little bit longer, to, to understand what is going on. The word justification is one of those things that we need to embed deep down in our souls. We need to own it and understand it. It's one of those things that it sounds like a good church word, doesn't it? Say justification. justification. See, don't, don't you feel a little more religious just having said it? But, but it, it's, it's important to understand what it really means. It, it's, it's a legal term in the original language. It is, it is what happens when a person comes to faith in Christ. We are justified. The justification is God's declaration of righteous. You are declared righteous by God when you come to faith in Christ. And it's our, it's our unrighteousness, it's our, our sinfulness as human beings that separates us from God. We're, we're separated, we're alienated from a morally perfect God by our sin. It's, 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 like, we're, it's like we're talking two different languages. Julie and I started dating in the summer of 1989. And I'll never forget that summer. I remember exactly where I was when I realized if you don't marry her, you're a fool. And I remember the conversation that we had sitting on my mom's couch watching David Letterman on CBS, on NBC, excuse me, on NBC when we had that DTR conversation. You know what DTR is, right? Define the relationship. Where it's kind of nebulous, it's kind of happening, but you haven't really described it or defined it, and then you kind of nail it down and you say, hey, I'm in. Are you in? And and you kind of hold your breath a little bit. And just for the record, as an aside that has nothing to do with the sermon, two years before we had the DTR conversation, Julie knew that we were going to get married. And and that that pattern has followed throughout our marriage. I'm about two years behind her all the time. (laughs) But on the night that I, that I, you know, boldened up and said, let's define the relationship. She looked me dead in the eye and said, I'm not ready for a relationship. Two years before, she knew we were going to get married. Explain that to me, please. But 
in a relationship with God. There is that moment at which you, you define the relationship. And you, you say to God, I'm in. I confess Jesus as my Lord, the director of my life, and my Savior. I, I claim the forgiveness of sins by confessing my sins to Christ. There's that, that, that moment where you define the relationship. And when that relationship is defined in that moment, God declares us righteous. The righteousness of Christ is laid on top of our unrighteousness. The righteousness of Christ that empowered him to rise from the dead, to subdue sin and defeat death, all of a sudden becomes our righteousness. It is a momentary thing. And that justification is critical. Where, where we are declared righteous by the only one who has the authority to declare anyone righteous. Now, this is significant because in Romans chapter 3, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You have, I have, all God's children have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all got sin in our lives. And yet in Christ, we are justified. We're justified not by what we do, by, by what, but by what Christ did. And that's one of the defining characteristics of Christianity. You see, all other religions in the world are man's attempt to get to God. Christianity is God getting to man. Because Jesus left heaven to become one of us. He took on the form of a servant and became one of us. And when we place our faith in Christ, we are justified through that faith. Now look at verses 3 and 4 in Romans 5. Not only this, not only this hope of the glory of God, but we also glory in our sufferings. Now, the word glory here is used as a verb. Think, think, celebrate. We, we celebrate our sufferings. That seems a little odd, but look at what he says. We celebrate our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. You see, it is a mark of character to be hopeful. I remember when our kids were very, very young, and a, a close friend of theirs had a parent die very unexpectedly. And when that happened, of course, it created a lot of questions and uncertainty in the minds of Emily and Joseph. And, and I'll never forget, as we were kind of talking through this around the dinner table one night, Joseph kind of started to get a little, a little concerned, and he started to get a little worked up, and he, he said, because, Dad, what, what would we do if, if you died? And I said, well, Joseph, the good news is I'm 10 feet tall and bulletproof. I'm never going to die. I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. Some of you are like, what? No. I said, well, Joseph, Mom and I have talked about that, and we've made plans. I don't plan on dying anytime soon, but we've made plans, and, and you all would be taken care of, and the good news is, Mom has a great church and a great family, and, and everything would, 
be taken care of. I mean, you'd be sad for a couple of days, I'm sure, but, but you'd figure it out and you, you would carry on. And I wanted him to know that no matter what happens, we'll figure it out. No matter what happens, God is still God and he's not going anywhere. He hadn't brought us all the way this far to leave us hanging. And so we can approach every day with hope. With hope because we've experienced some pretty significant challenges back down the road. You know, I've shared with you at length multiple times before the fact that when I was in middle school, my parents split up and divorced. And I remember a lot of times without even recognizing it at the time, growing up and coming through college, and even after college, after Julie and I got married, that I remembered that, that I had gotten through that season and I knew that God had brought people around my family and I had an incredible mother and my brothers and I banded together and, and, and we got through that. But it was because we got through that that there wasn't a whole lot else that I really thought could just take the wheels of my life off. There, there, I, I realized because God had brought me through that when I was 12 that, that probably just about everything else it was going to be handleable. And I think that's the principle that God is communicating here in Romans chapter 5, where, where he says that our sufferings produce perseverance, and our perseverance creates character, and our character generates hope. So if we're going to be people of hope, if we're going to live this out, to cultivate hope, you've got to demonstrate hope. If you want to cultivate hope in your life, you've got to demonstrate that hope. You've got to choose to persevere. Do not quit. Don't quit. People say all the time, well, you know, God will never give you more than you can handle. It sounds great, doesn't it? And it feels good in a way. It just isn't true. That's the only problem with that one is the fact that God will absolutely allow more into our lives than we can handle because when he allows that more than we can handle, we're driven into his arms. We're driven to his power when we get to the end of our power. And when we develop that kind of perseverance, we develop hope that we can get through whatever comes next. That's one of the most important things we do as parents is to teach our kids how to persevere. And the way that we teach our kids how to persevere is we allow them to fail. Not everybody gets a ribbon. And if you're in a sports league that gives away a ribbon to every kid, take it away from your kid. And don't participate in those leagues ever again. Because they're lying to our children. <laughs> There's another smattering. We've got some golfers in here. Those are golf claps. And that's cool. I'm not, I'm not criticizing. I, you know, but I'm just telling you, we have to allow our kids to fail. Let them have a homework assignment not turned in because they left it at home. Don't take it up to the school. But I have the time. So what? Have another cup of coffee. 
Because if we don't allow our kids to fail, they don't develop perseverance. And if they don't develop perseverance, they never cultivate hope. It's in the perseverance that we cultivate and we develop hope. It's what God says. Now, in order to persevere, we have to participate in the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at what the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. We have to participate in the power of the Holy Spirit. Look back at that list again of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is there anybody here who has too much of all of that? I mean, we need that, and it is only the Holy Spirit that grows that in us. We don't have that in and of ourselves. We have to participate in the power of the Holy Spirit in order to persevere, to keep going, and to not quit. Now, it would be tempting to turn this into a locker room speech for, for inspiration, to, to say, you go get them, you persevere, let's go out there and win one for the Gipper, okay? But I've noticed something. We'll make a change because of a negative reason, but we'll only sustain that change for a positive reason. You'll, you'll change the way that you eat because you want to lose weight or because your blood pressure is too high or, or, or you don't like the way you look in your, you know, Speedo, men. But, but you'll only sustain that change because you like what the change does. Because, because the effects of that change are positive. And when you see the change affect positive results, you're kind of like, well, I'm, I'm going to stick with this thing. I'm going to do this. And the Bible brings this back full circle to where we began when we talked about the gospel this morning. Verse 6 in Romans chapter 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, for the unrighteous. Now very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly, possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, while I was still dead in my sin, Jesus went to the cross for me. Before I even knew I needed a Savior, before grace had even awakened me to my need for forgiveness, Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross because God so loved the world. You see, God demonstrated this love in that 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Which, which tells us we can't do anything to earn that. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be too bad for it. He just did it. He, he just did it out of love. And in that love, and in that forgiveness, is the justification, the, the declaration that in Christ we are made right with God, despite our sin. That in Christ we have hope. We are hope in this world. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. Because I think this is an incredible opportunity and a moment to declare where you stand. Maybe, maybe for you, this is the moment to define the relationship with God. To just say, I need forgiveness. I've never been declared righteous or, or justified in Christ. If that's you this morning, then we want to invite you to pray a prayer of beginning. Just right where you're sitting. Just pray silently to enter into that relationship with God. He's already provided the means necessary, Jesus. And through his amazing grace, he's now made you aware of that. And so if you want to step into that relationship, then I'll just invite you to pray silently right where you're sitting. Just talk to God and say something like this in your own words with everything that you've got. Just silently pray and say, Jesus, I need you. I choose to believe that you died on the cross for me and that you rose again from the grave. And I confess my sin to you, and I claim your forgiveness. And from this moment forward, I will follow you with everything I have. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. Now, if that was your prayer as we remain in a spirit of prayer throughout this room. This is the most important moment of your life. And I want to invite you to do two things. Number one, I want to invite you just to let us know that God did that in your life, that you responded to the amazing grace of God by taking the program that you got when you came in this morning, open it up to the connect card inside, and then fill it out. 
name, phone, and email. We always keep that internal. That doesn't ever go out to anybody else. That's just a way for us to, to contact you so that we can help in this new relationship. And then you'll see about a third of the way down, maybe halfway, I committed my life to Christ this week. If you'll just indicate that there. Then fold it along the spine a couple of times. You can tear it's perforated. And before you leave today, turn that connect card in. Just hand it to one of our ushers on your way out. And then the second thing, for those of you who pray to begin that relationship with God, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, would you just raise your hand? Just, just raise your hand up high over your head and hold it there for a moment. Because this is a moment that you need to remember. It's a moment that we as a church want to remember and, and honor. Because it's this moment in your life and so many others like it that is the reason we exist as a church. And so as a church, as a, as a family of faith, we celebrate that in your life. And as you put your hands down, our family tradition is that we put our hands together to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.